Hello, and thank you for listening to the MicroBinFi podcast. Here, we will be discussing topics in microbial bioinformatics. We hope that we can give you some insights, tips, and tricks along the way. There is so much information we all know from working in the field, but nobody writes it down. There is no manual, and it's assumed you'll pick it up. We hope to fill in a few of these gaps. My co-hosts are Dr. Nabil Ali Khan and Dr. Andrew Page. I am Dr. Lee Katz. Both Andrew and Nabil work in the Quadrum Institute in Norwich, UK, where they work on microbes in food and the impact on human health. I work at Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and am an adjunct member at the University of Georgia in the US. Hello and welcome to the MicroBinFi podcast. Today, we are talking to a special guest about the situation of COVID-19 in Denmark. Things are changing very quickly, so I should mention that today is the 9th of March, 2021, and some of what we say may change by the time you hear this. So joining us today, our special guest is Maz Albertson, who is a professor MSO at the Center of Microbial Communities at Aalborg University. So welcome, Mads. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> okay, so let's get straight into it. We've talked before in the past about how this was getting into COVID was kind of like this phone call in the middle of the night. How did it start for you? How did you get roped into this? So, so basically, I, I was following it in the start of, of the year and didn't, I took it seriously, but uh, didn't really know <laughs> what was coming. But then in the middle of March, our prime minister closed down Denmark, sent me home from the university, closed our labs. And then I figured, uh, can we do something? So, so I basically called uh, one of my funding buddies. Can I start using one of my, my big grants on this and all my people? They said yes. Then I called uh, the hospitals I knew. And suddenly I had contact with the national lab that was doing this. And I said, if you can ship me samples, I'll sequence whatever you send our way. Yeah. And that started uh, over a weekend, basically. So Monday, uh, the university labs was opened again. I got in contact with our rector, uh, got him to open uh, based on, on COVID work. And uh, five days later, we had sequenced the first genomes uh, using the Arctic protocol uh, on Nanopore uh, in Denmark. That's amazing. So you just, you were able to cut through the bureaucracy to get it done that fast. <laughs> Uh, yes and no. <laughs> I still we're still in the bureaucracy uh, uh, right now. Uh, a year later, I would say. Uh, so we were able to sequence within a week uh, anonymized samples, so test samples we got from the hospital. Then it took two weeks more to get the legal legal documents in place, so we could actually help out the government lab. It's called Staten Serum Institute uh, in Denmark, and it's not like we could do research on it, but we were able to to act as like a deliverer of data to them. And that made we could certainly handle all the sensitive information at our place. And that took two weeks. Uh, in my mind, that was like ages. According to the lawyers, that was like world records getting that set up in so fast <laughs> time. So, so that was, uh, they were very happy. And yeah. So, so we got started uh, back then. Uh, and yeah, three weeks after we started, we actually had the first uh, real sample sequence where we could connect it to patient information. It's amazing. So, I mean, what were you doing before before this? What was your day job? What, were you, what was the project originally that you sort of co-opted for this? So my group normally does uh, metagenomics and we play with nanopore. So we try to, try to play with the next shiny sequencing instrument we can get our hands on and see what we can uh, use it for. Uh, 
one of the, the big projects uh, we had ongoing is what's called the Microflora Danica. We convinced a private foundation called the Grundsatz Foundation to give us, that must be like 4 million euros, to sequence uh, 10,000 samples across Denmark to figure out which microbes are actually present. So it's a really uh, like basic science where we play with new methods, try to discover as many novel microbes uh, as we can. And those people, so I have around 10 people on that project, we th threw into COVID work back then. Did you get the publications out from that or did you immediately have to switch over and that's indefinitely paused? That's indefinitely paused, getting back to it now. Uh, but yeah, there was a, a lot of uh, nice high-impact papers on the way, we hope, that hopefully still are there now when we are starting to slowly get back. Don't worry, everyone in the world has moved over to COVID, so uh, you know, you're not missing anything. <laughs> yeah, that, that's that's. I think that's fine. It's, it's been fun to, to help out, but of course, it's been a, a big hit to our normal research. And so, how did you actually get started off? You're using minions. Did you have any other sequencers, or was it just a room full of minions uh, taped to random computers? Yeah, so from Twitter, that how, that's how it looks, and that's also how it, it runs. Uh, so we have Illumina also at our place, but we mainly use MinIons because it's very flexible for, for development work uh, when we have to test things. And it's it's just a bit more fun to play with Nanopore uh, normally. So that's where we, we got started uh, originally. And so what do you do? Do you, do you run 96 at a time on a flow cell, or do you wash flow cells in between, or, or how do you work? So what we do right now is we run everything in plates. So we have 96 positions. I think we have 88 samples on the plates. We pool two plates and divide it on two or three minions at the same time. We do that to make sure if we have one bad flow source, we'll still generate enough data. And then we start sequencing in the afternoon. And then we kill it after we have generated 10 gigabases per flow cell or at 6 a.m. the next day. And that makes sure we can actually just deliver data. So we, we use like one third of the capacity of the flow shell and then we just chug it out. Uh, it's too expensive to start to wash flow cells or do anything else compared to what everything else costs. Are you not saving up those flow cells for later on for all of your other normal projects? You can just use the other yeah. 20 gigs or whatever on a flow cell. Yes, we are, of course, washing them and keeping them in, in freezer so we can reuse them. And we are, of course, we are also using them quite a lot. So if we have to test something, we just take a few old flow cells out and test it on, on that. So that's, that's really convenient to be able to use it. It's really only emergency where we're using it to sequence real samples. We had a few times where delivery got stuck uh, from Nanopore, uh, or we had a lot of bad flow cells. Where we then had to go to the freezer and take those out. And they work just as fine as normal flow cells. We just play it safe normally because it's not the sequencing cost that matters in, in these uh, projects we run. It's such a small part of the cost. So you said you do 88 samples on a on a run. So what does your plate look like? How many controls, how many positive, negative? So we have four negatives spread in the center of the, the plates, divided a bit out. Then we have one positive, then we have two blank spots for measuring concentrations. The nice thing is that we get these plates, so we don't do the RNA extraction. We get these plates from the hospitals or the national lab, and they ship it to us then, and then we can just take a plate, just chug it through without changing anything in the whole process. That's really convenient from our side, that we don't have to touch anything. Everything, for room for concentration measurements is also in there. That is awesome because we get uh, random plates from places, not even plates, tubes and stuff sometimes from many different uh, diagnostic platforms. Some of them, you don't have CTs. Some of them, you know, you have to do extractions, that kind of thing. And my God, we would love just to have plates of RNA. It would be great. 
Yeah, and that's that's really privileged in that way that the national lab in Denmark they, they handle all that in a, in a in an automated fashion. So in Denmark we have two test tracks. I think most countries have a healthcare track based on the hospitals. Then we have a community track which is really, really large-scale testing in huge labs on robots. And the flow from there is quite easy. Everything is done on robots. Positive sample is called, gets re-instructed in the normal format and shipped to us. But all the handling of samples from the hospitals is a manual process, but not done by us, luckily. That's really grateful for all the work that the national lab is doing. That's like a huge work to do that. And we get you get the nice plates. I, I guess people maybe not realize just how big of a logistical challenge that is. Like that, that is enormous. And I know in the UK, that's one of the huge blockers is just simply cherry picking out the positives from the mountain of negatives. And yeah, that, that is just a huge blocker. And it has uh, been a limited rate limiting step for the UK, which hopefully they're slowly solving, but it is a big challenge particularly when you're operating at scale, it's a massive challenge. So fair play to your national lab for sorting that out. Yeah, I'm, I'm a bit curious on that because it sounds like the national lab already had this infrastructure in place to kind of do this work. So what were they fielding routinely? Was it just general everything or? Yes, so in Denmark, from the start of the pandemic, the hospitals were required to ship out all positive samples to the national lab. So in that way, it was actually set up that the hospitals already picked out the positive samples. So it's, it's not the RNA we get from the samples, we actually re-extract the, the positive samples. Again, in the beginning, I was very surprised, why couldn't we just get the RNA? But that's a logistical nightmare. It's much easier to actually get the, the samples itself than do re-extraction again. And so what's the turnaround time from when someone gets sampled to actually having a sequence? So from the, the community track, we have a medium turnaround time of five days. From the healthcare track, it's around 10 days. That's quite interesting. Why is it slower for healthcare? because there's much more logistics involved. So this is done on a lot of hospitals in Denmark. It has to find the samples and ship it in. If it's in from the community track, it's on huge robot farms that's located just next to the national lab and everything there is just automated. That's interesting because we have the opposite. Our healthcare, which is pillar one, is very, very fast. And you know it can be sample one day, sequence the next. And it's a community bit that takes a bit longer you know, because samples have to go up and down the UK and God only knows where else and that before they actually ever get to a sequencing center and uh, so turnaround times can be much longer like in terms of weeks like two three weeks yeah i see local turnaround time is also faster so we've set up the sequencing at, at all hospitals in denmark too so they can do local sequencing and they do local outbreaks uh, and there they, they can do same day turnaround on samples and they also do uh, on high priority but for the national surveillance, it is around these 10 days uh, median turnaround time from the healthcare track. So how are your clinicians actually using the data for local outbreaks? I actually don't know much about that part. Uh, so we are more involved in the data generation on a, a national. And then the, the hospitals uh, are using it for small local outbreaks. But right now in Denmark, it has really mainly been used as a national surveillance of B117. Uh, and also uh, monitoring of variants of concern that has then been enhanced uh, contact tracing on it. I think that's what we, we envy the, the UK for uh, quite a bit, using the data a bit more actively uh, on that part than we are in Denmark right now. Yeah, I know for outbreaks, it has proven useful, but it requires someone, you know, like one of us to actually interpret the data for them because while they can look at lineages, you know, it doesn't really tell them very much. It's when you actually have to dig in and say, you know, 
this over here is a cluster and that's not a cluster or you've two outbreaks here or it's kind of one thing is a split and now it's you know your staff are infecting staff and patients are independently infecting patients it's proven to be quite useful but you do really need that genomic epidemiology and those experts on hand to interpret the data yeah we have a few of them in denmark at the national lab but as, as everyone else they are overburdened with work so i think they are, they are in short supply people who can actually do that and that's the main bottleneck actually for using the data that's having more people who are very good at this interacting with, with other healthcare professionals so what do you think the future is going to be like now in denmark because now you've gotten sequencing into the clinic uh, which is what we've all been trying to do for years do you think it's going to continue? Is it going to just kind of fizzle out? I think it has really opened some doors and shown people what's actually possible today with sequencing capacity. That it starts to be too expensive not to sequence the cases. And we have the technology today to simply sequence everything. And I think we're going to move very fast on that. Denmark has already been okay at it. But I think now the local hospitals also start to see the value of doing this. And then the main bottleneck is, do we then have uh, enough people who are actually good at this or to to make sure the data gets used? Because I can see, you know, in the future, people will try and apply the same methods for flu and for just any viruses and bacterial outbreaks, you know, just in general, you know, as a matter of course. And that will be quite interesting. But then, of course, you can't have Amplicon sequencing for every different virus and whatnot. It just wouldn't make sense. So it would really be down to doing metagenomics and uh, microbial communities, which you are more familiar with than most. Do you think that would be a reasonable thing for hospitals to have, you know, a metagenomic sequencing, just sequence a sample and then you get an answer? Yeah, I think that that's uh, given the cost of sequencing today. I think it's relatively cheap to actually do. And most people have the sequencing capacity to, to do it. So, so I think that could be something that moves into routine. But of course, what I've learned last year, that you need to have really robust protocols and procedures at the hospitals. And that takes some time to, to develop. We just develop something and then we, we let others make it into some robust workflow. And that takes some time to make sure that's really integrated. So what, what I want to know is you start off with the Arctic Protocol, but then you tweaked it slightly. How, how did you tweak it and, and why did you make the changes? So uh, we started back in March, and our main problem was there. If, if I did back of the envelope calculations, we had 24 barcodes at that time. I would need like 100 men in the lab to, to actually do these protocols. So the one thing we wanted to change was barcoding. So we, we switched to barcoding in the PCR, which is very easy with Nanobar. I don't know why more people don't do that themselves. So that's, that, that was the first thing we changed. And then at the same time, we wanted to utilize the capacity of the, the Nanobar. And, and that's a bit better if you have longer amplicons. So we dialed it up to around 1200 uh, bases to be, to be able to, to push uh, 30 gigabases uh, per flow for, uh, so, uh, at least. Uh, so that was the main, main changes, barcoding at the PCR step instead. To allow for, I think we, we made 500 different barcodes or something like that back then. Uh, Did you use the Nanopore PCR barcodes? No, we just made our own, put in 10, 10 random uh, nucleotides and you have your barcode uh, and then you call it. So it's really easy to do. So I'm curious with the long amplicons, what we've noticed with some of the variants of concern is that their mutations may take some primer targets out of, you know, they, they don't work and you won't get any coverage in that area immediately downstream. Have you been seeing that on through your protocol? So we actually, so we use the Arctic primers too. We just use one third of the primers basically. And we do also see amplicon dropouts from time to time, not in the variants of concern, 
currently. But if we see an amplicon dropout, it's going to have a larger effect because we miss a larger part of the genome. But on the other hand, it's also a smaller part of the genome sensitive for having mutations because you have fewer primers. Yeah, that's true. So there, there is a deletion that is causing some issues and they are bringing out an update to Arctic, just one extra primer to fix it. Yeah, so what, we, what we've done so far is we do rebalancing. So, so we add in more primers of those that seem to not work that much. We had some issues with primer-based dropouts back in November when we had all the MIG variations, but they, they disappeared again and then our problems disappeared. It's really difficult to fix these problems because it depends on the current variants that actually circulate. And in general, I think the current Arctic primer seems to work quite nice still in our mind. So I've heard that the reason why Arctic goes for short amplicon lengths of about 400 is because it works better on high CT and degraded samples. What kind of effect do you see by increasing to 1200 or 1400? So we, I think we compared around 100 samples originally with the original Arctic compared to what we do. And it was very similar results. And that's basically what we've done so far. And you can see what we compare with what people do in the literature. Yeah, at the same success rate, more or less. We were also concerned, especially in the start, that we might miss a lot of uh, high CT uh, samples, but it doesn't seem to be a big problem. I would assume that definitely smaller amplicons are better, but, but it, in practice, it doesn't seem to have as, as big effect as I thought. Do you think it's because in Denmark, you're doing the re-extractions much closer to the sequencing? I know with us, the RNA can be quite degraded sometimes, and we just have to use the diagnostic, like the waste from the diagnostics and whatever comes out of the machine, that's what we have to use. And it might be sitting at room temperature for a while. There might be a freeze-toil cycle, but actually you guys have a much more controlled way of getting those samples. And maybe that's why you can actually go for these longer amplicons. Yeah, that's a good point. That could actually be, be one of the, the reasons why it works quite nice here. And do you have a pu- publication uh, on this new method? We made a protocols.io back in, in April. We just haven't had time to do anything. It's, it's a bit uh, crazy. We'd had hoped to, to have like 10 major papers now on everything, but just haven't had time to, to do much. We're starting now to get a bit back to writing some of the things up we've done, so writing a bit more on the performance on, on the method and also what we've seen in Denmark. But it's first now, and let's hope we don't get any new variants. So we thought back in November that we, start, we should start to now write things up. Then we had all the link variants in Denmark. Then we started to get a bit relaxed in December. Then we have the B117. And yeah. So whenever I think we, we have to relax, uh, we get a new variant. We have to. Actually, speaking of mink variant, um, we've just seen an N501T pop up in, in uh, Zimbabwe, which is oh. quite interesting. Yeah. yeah. I would say long amplicon protocols out there that also seems to work uh, nicely. This is just what we've started doing and what we are still more or less doing. So what's kind of, kind of scale are you guys operating at now? So right now we're doing a thousand samples a day, but in theory we can do around uh, 2,500 samples a day if you really have to push. And we do two days in the lab per batch. So we start doing uh, PCR and cDNA on day one, and then we do pooling, normalization, and uh, nanopore prep on day two. Do you guys work weekends as well? No, not unless it's really urgent. Uh, so we did in the start of January. There we said you ship everything, we'll just sequence it. And I think we did uh, a couple of weeks with 10,000 samples. A week back then. That's more than most countries have done, you know, for the entire pandemic. Countries, you know, vastly bigger than Denmark, and you do it in a week. Yeah, it's quite nice. But also, as, as we talked uh, about before, it really also comes back to how it's set up in Denmark on a national level with how the testing facilities and the sample prep. 
So if you got samples in a nice 96 volt format, I think you can also push more samples. Now, is this, just as a comment, like this seems to be a, a common story that anybody who's really had successes on the back of long-term infrastructure, long-term investment in knowledge, just a hint to anyone in policymaking out there. What do you mean? You can't just build this overnight and uh, like America's trying to do? Yeah, you can't. Almost <laughs> pile of money at it. You can't just throw money at it. No, that seems to be the issue. I was just going to ask, uh, was your, your Christmas cancelled uh, like our Christmas was over here? Our holidays were very reduced, at least. So people were tired after our November, where we really scaled up to sequence mink-related cases. So we had planned for, for going for 1,000 samples a week instead of 5,000. But we powered through instead. We still had Christmas, still had a few days of holidays. But other than that, we had a, a team in processing uh, samples. And the data we generated around uh, Christmas and New Year's, that was actually the, the data that was used to enforce stricter lockdowns in Denmark. So, so I think it really also had an, an impact uh, that we really stepped up and generated enough data that the politicians dared take decisions based on that. And that's a really good impact. That's science in action, which must feel really good for you guys. You know, you're doing a bit of work and then you're seeing the effect immediately. It's not like you're writing publication and waiting you know, a few years to see will someone hopefully pick it up or cite it. Yeah, it's a bit, bit strange that you actually see that this has an impact on the society as we, we do it. Uh, and of course, the team is very proud that we are helping to do this. But it's also very special that, that so much emphasis is now put on, on these data. They actually, that we have a government that, that's quite brave enough to try to steer some of the country, basically. I mean, some of us at the, over Christmas, we were getting blamed for the whole thing. Do you really want to be known as the scientist who stole Christmas? <laughs> but that's also how it is in Denmark. So we also start to have more people making uh, a lot of noise and are not happy. Now I also get uh, funny, strange emails from strange people uh, saying that uh, this is our responsibility and there's no virus. But but I guess this this is what we have to, to live with. So based off th- what you're saying, it sounds like most of the organization goes to the National Reference Lab. And is that also applied to metadata? contextual data around the samples as well. How, how does that flow through from the hospital to, to you? Yes, yeah, so, so everything is going through the national lab. It also keeps the national surveillance data for Denmark. That means that every single sample can actually be connected directly to a person. And that data can also be connected directly to the health record that, that can be pulled by the national lab. So everything in, in Denmark is really directly connected to the data through the national lab. And, and by coincidence, more or less, it's actually my group that then connects the genome data to all the healthcare-based data on our servers. And who manages the uploads to GISAID and ENA in place of that? That does my fantastic PhD student, Thomas using Michaelsen. He does uh, all the uploads until now without any errors, more or less, it seems. At least we have like a perfect record of dates, as I've been following on, on Twitter compared to many other countries. I, I see Art is doing up these beautiful graphs where you're showing, well, kind of shaming countries. Yeah, yeah, very, you're very happy about them in Denmark. I know in the UK's case, sometimes you just can't get dates because sometimes samples will be slipped through the system. Or actually, sometimes you'll get the, the data sample collection with a person's date of birth. And it's like, well, probably not. <laughs> We get a lot of strange samples in Denmark too, and then we have around 50,000 sequences that's uploaded. We've sequenced 100,000 samples, and I think around 20,000 of them, multiple sequences from the same person or things that, that by one or the other way couldn't be related to a proper sample, so we don't upload it. 
So we have a big filter in front that makes sure that the data we upload from Denmark is also quite representative of, of the, the pandemic. Awesome. And what kind of data are you allowed to share? Not much right now. So, so we are allowed to share uh, data with a date that bent to a current week uh, and the region where it was taken. And I'm not sure we are really allowed to do that by the lawyers. That has really been an ongoing discussion. Uh, how much are you actually allowed to, to share? And that's where, why I tried to say before that, that we are still discussing with the lawyers uh, here a year later on what we can upload uh, and what we can do. And also how can we share, for example, data just back to the hospitals? That, that's actually also difficult because they take samples at the hospitals, but they also have a lot of community spreads that's tested in the community track, but we cannot share those data with them. So there's, there's still, uh, I would say, a lot of strange legal things that needs to be sorted out to be able to use these data effectively. And I think that's hopefully for the next, next pandemic, and that's hopefully sorted. Uh, it really took us by surprise, I think, this time, how difficult these things are. That is quite disappointing because it is quite useful seeing the community data and the hospital data in context because you can tell quite easily if this particular outbreak is related to community or if it's just hospital associated, it, you can see it at glance nearly. Yeah, in Denmark we can also do it, but it needs to be in collaboration with the national lab then, because they're the ones with, with the correct level of, of access to data to be able to do it. But that's really a bottleneck that you need to then have uh, like 50 more people employed at the national lab to just help with inquiries from the, the hospital. So I think that, that's one of the things that it needs to be sorted, at least in the future. And we are working on it. It just takes ages when you have lawyers involved. So what are the next steps for your group as vaccination is rolled out? So that's getting out again of this, basically. So, so when we started back in, in March, I set a hard deadline, say we want to be out 1st of January again. At that point, the hospitals and the state lab needs to have taken over. Then we have a lot of new variants coming out, but now the deadline is, is summer. We want to be out. And that's also what we are setting up now. So the national lab is building sequencing capacity and the hospitals are also building capacity. We now have some of the big hospitals starting to sequence a much larger share. And that's what we are using the next months for, figuring out how can we actually make sure that we can improve the surveillance, actually. So I think bringing the sequencing even closer to the samples is going to improve the turnaround time uh, in a good way. So hopefully we can land that nicely in the next three months and help with that transition too. And you can have some summer holidays then. Yeah, I would like to be out before summer holidays this year. But of course, if it goes wrong again, if we get new variants because of the vaccines popping up, then we are of course here to help. But we, we hope, like everyone else, that this starts to be over by summer and that we all can get back a bit more to normal life again. So who's, who's taking over at uh, SSI, actually? That's also a bit undecided now, which group is actually going to run it and if it's going to be together with Test Center Denmark, so the big testing facility. And that's what we are figuring out now. SSI is figuring out how is this really going to set up. But once you, you have programs at this size, this is actually it's a quite big program. Uh, there's also starts to be a lot of political interest and people with big egos that wants to, to figure out how this is done in a proper way. So it's a bit more uh, complex process getting it set up. But again, we are here to help until that's really in place. And hopefully it's going to be set up in a few months. So what are some advice for anyone, any country or any lab that wants to get started in this space? You know, just a couple of pointers. So I think one of the important points is to be inclusive, to make sure that you acknowledge the hospitals and all the people actually involved in this. Sequencing is one part, but you need to really have excellent collaboration in the whole like food chain from a sample is taken to actually get acting on the, on the data. I think that's been one of the, the big lessons in Denmark, that we have really a good healthcare system in place already, where these things are relatively easy to do. 
and and don't neglect neglect how much work you actually need to put in to get it to work. Then I think the the other thing is make sure you you solve all the problems that comes your way. I think one of the the, the reasons why we've been successful in Denmark is that I have a, a awesome team behind me that solved the thousand problems that occur in projects like this. Just from primers missing in the lab to not being able to order reagents to figuring out how to buy stuff in Singapore or stuff like that because it's just not available. There's a thousand problems that's going to occur. And you need to put on the hat saying, I'm going to forget that it's a problem and they just solve it. On that inspirational words from, from you, Mads, that'll be it for today. So that's all the time we have for. And uh, yeah, I want to thank Mads for joining us today. Very interesting. And thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks. Thank you all so much for listening to us at home. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and like us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or the platform of your choice. And if you don't like this podcast, please don't do anything. This podcast was recorded by the Microbial Bioinformatics Group and edited by Nick Waters. The opinions expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of CDC or the Quadrum Institute.